God, thank you that you do love all the little children of the world, uh, us included. Thank you for Jesus, all that you've done for us in him, all that you are doing and all that you will do. Uh, And open our minds now, God, in this moment to what you would say to us, to how you would get our attention, that we might seek out what you're saying to us for the purpose that we might do something about that and move toward you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me add my welcome to those of others. It's good to be together this morning. I'm John, one of the pastors at this church. If you're a guest, that's good to be worshiping together. We're on this special World Communion Sunday continuing a sermon series uh, for the fall that's taking us through the Apostles' Creed. And we're uh, just kind of taking our time looking at uh, phrase by phrase of the creed and some of the underlying scripture that uh, support the creed upon which the creed is based. And it's it's really, in, in my mind, pretty important stuff because in some ways the creed functions as a summary of the Christian faith. And I know I've showed these pictures. If you've been here every time, you might be getting tired of these, but it's a helpful image for me. If the Bible is this, in the map with every last detail, then the Apostles' Creed is this, uh, a map with just the major roads, right? It's the well-worn paths of the Christian faith. And, you know, sometimes you need the map with every last detail. Sometimes you just need the pocket map with the major roads, and that's kind of what the Apostles' Creed is. It's that, it's that pocket map. And there are some big movements in the Apostles' Creed. It starts with God the Father and then moves to God the Son, Jesus. And, th- and that's where we've been camped out the last couple of weeks. There's, there's a lot in there about Jesus. There's some stuff about his identity and birth. And then last week we talked about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then the Creed moves on to talk about what Jesus is doing now and what he has promised to do in the future. So it's this kind of present and future uh, role of, of Christ. So that's what, where we're headed today. This is the actual phrase in the creed. He, meaning Jesus, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And like I mentioned, the, the creed is based on Scripture. So let's look together at one of the passages upon which this, this phrase of the creed was based. It's from Ephesians Uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. So let me read this for you. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand, in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Indeed, friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it's, uh, you know, present and future, but we had, we had a little past tense in there yet, if you caught that. He ascended into heaven. And that's really the, the last piece 
of the Jesus story on earth. And, and if you're less familiar with the Bible, you can read about that in Acts chapter 1. Uh, but the, the, the big part of the story is that uh, after Jesus was raised from the dead, you know, we talked about this last week, this is the central claim of, of Christianity, that Jesus was raised from the dead in his body. So when we gather here every Sunday morning, we gather around a central claim that Jesus really lived, was as real as you and me in this space right now, that he really died, his life was gone, he was dead, and God made him alive again. That's the big ticket item. That's the main thing. And in this space, as a, as a church, we believe that actually happened. It's not just a metaphor, not just a spiritual idea. We believe that happened historically. And so we work out all the implications of that for us based on what the scripture teaches and the, the, the central claim of that, of that great truth, that Jesus is alive. So says the Bible, after Jesus was raised from the dead, and he was dead but made alive again by God, it goes on to say what happened. He actually appeared to people over a period of 40 days and, and says those passages in Acts, he appeared to the apostles and to many others and, and gave convincing proofs that he was alive, actually alive again from the dead because if, if they were anything like us, they needed convincing proofs because this doesn't happen. Dead people don't come back to life. And, and the story goes on, and a- after sharing some things with them about not trying to guess the dates or times when God will bring everything to a conclusion, the Bible says this, Jesus was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And this is what, the, what Christians call the ascension. Again, it's a, it's a historical claim in, in its nature that there were some followers of Jesus gathered there that they were talking with him and something happened. They saw something happened. C.S. Lewis speculated about it and, and said maybe it was like this. That they, the apostles, saw first a short vertical movement and then a vague luminosity, which is presumably a cloud, and then nothing. He was gone. Now, now can you think of it? Imagine your way back to standing right there with Jesus standing right there. And imagine yourself witnessing that. I mean, they didn't just believe he was alive. They knew he was alive. That's the resurrection. They didn't just know that he lived for a little bit. They saw him leave very much alive. See, when you move from assenting to religious ideas to knowing Jesus is alive, everything changes. This is the distinction between the claims of Christian faith and really every other religion and spiritual idea everywhere that something has happened historically. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven. 
and he is alive right now and still doing stuff, which is the point of the rest of the message. What is Jesus doing now? So he ascended to heaven, and here's where we switch from past tense to present tense, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. I mean, this, this is what the Bible says Jesus is doing now. In, in old uh, uh, translations, right, he, he sitteth at the right hand of the Father. Sitteth-ing doesn't sound very hard, does it? <laughs> so what exactly is Jesus doing now? What does it mean to be at someone's right hand? You know, in the ancient world, if, if you know the Bible a little more, the apostles got into a little tussle about who was going to be on Jesus' right hand and who was going to be on his left hand, and they were all vying for this because it was understood that the right hand was the place to be. So when Jesus is at God's right hand, what, what does that actually mean as to what he's doing now, where he is, the position he occupies? It was in the passage we read this morning, when God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand, in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. So God's right hand is a place of authority. And, and that is what Jesus is doing now. He is, he is ruling in authority. He has ultimate authority. God gave that to him. And, and Jesus exercised this at that first Pentecost long ago. The, the scripture says this, Acts 2.33, exalted to God's right hand, Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. That was the work of Jesus. He did that. By his authority, he did that. So God's right hand is the place of authority. God's right hand is the place of honor. Again, the the apostles were fighting over who gets to sit there, right? I want to be there. Come on. God's right hand is the place of honor. God's right hand is the place of influence and intercession. Look, Look at what the Bible says about what Jesus is doing now. Who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Amazing, right? Jesus continues to act on our behalf right now, says the Bible. He's praying for us, using this place of influence uh, to, to intercede for us. I mean, he gave himself on the cross for us in the past, and he continues to work on our behalf in the present, right now. Has that captured your imagination? That we're not just clinging to something distantly historical like 2,000 years ago. The heart of real Christianity says that Jesus acts on our behalf now. That's how deep God's love is for us. And it continues to be expressed. Jesus interacting with the Father on our behalf now. And finally, God's right hand is the place of of focus. I love this from Colossians. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Right? The place of, of authority and, and uh, the, the place of, of, of intercession where Jesus is acting on our behalf. And, and in a way, in a small way, we've already been raised with Christ, not in a final sense, but in, 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 the, in the idea that Jesus has brought the kingdom to where we are now, 
We're to focus where Jesus is now, at the right hand of the Father, to set our attention there, our gaze there. It's a little bit of that uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus kind of thing in any and every situation of life, be it very easy, be it a a mountaintop kind of thing, or very difficult, the, the deepest valley kind of thing. We're invited to set our hearts on things above, to choose to look that way and focus that direction. Right? This, this is where Jesus is now. So what's Jesus doing in the present? You know, he's, he's ruling with authority, continuing to bless the church, praying for us and for the world, still working on our behalf and, and for our salvation. That, that's a thing. So that's, that's the present. He ascended into heaven, end of the past. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, doing all of these things right now. And then the future. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Some scriptures upon which this is based. Jesus coming back to to judge from Hebrews. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. The Bible's really clear about this. We we have one life to live. And and we are accountable for that. And, And at some point we will face judgment Uh, Through this and and many other references in the Bible, it's very clear that there will be a day, there will be a moment at some point of judgment. And it's also very clear that Jesus will be the judge. Look at this. Uh, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then this from Acts. Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed judge of the living and the dead. So the Bible's really clear on this. There, there will be judgment and Jesus is the judge. And there is massive confusion and misunderstanding in the church as to what this actually means. Because when we start talking about this, if, if, if you're uh, like me, your mind can start to think, ooh, huh, huh but I swing and miss like every five minutes. How can I possibly think about a time where I will stand before God and Jesus will judge me? (laughs) What? So what does the Bible say about that for, for Christians? What does the Bible say about judgment? First, when will it happen? Uh, The answer, at the end of this present age, after the resurrection of everyone. Here's what the scripture says. Don't be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So this verse also answers another question, who will be judged? Answer, everybody. Nobody gets a pass on this one. And and the verse raises another question. What will be the standard of judgment? This is answered very clearly in the Bible too. Jesus speaking, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. I mean, the the standard biblically is this this re-entering of a trust relationship with God through Jesus. And, and being united, united with Christ. So, why does the Bible then so consistently talk about people being judged by their works, 
not by this reunited relationship. Because there's, there's a clear and intimate connection between faith and works. James put it very clearly. Show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by what I do. You know, the two go together. John Calvin put it this way. It is faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Like a trusting faith, if a person has actually entered into the place where you can trust Jesus with your life, your life is is changed. Not made perfect. Nobody's is quite yet. So the standard is not perfection, right? Not, Not a perfect life, not a perfect example. A living example of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus and moving forward with him. The fruit of the spirit growing in a person's life. So faith and work goes together. So at the judgment of all people, those who are in a trusting relationship with God, says the Bible, will will be judged as if Jesus was standing there. As if God was looking at Jesus. Because this is what the gospel is all about, right? When when we come into that trusting relationship with, with, uh, with Christ, God copies the perfectly validating performance record of Jesus and pastes it onto our resume. And we have not only uh, the canceling of our negative balance in our great spiritual bank account, but the pouring into our account, uh, 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 you know, resources for life, an account that can never be tapped out. That's the thing, such that at the, at the time of judgment, we stand before God and God will see Jesus. Wow. This, this is amazing. This is why throughout the history of the church, Christians have longed for this day, have, have looked forward to this. So that's, that's all, the, that's all the, the creed, Bible, theology stuff. Now what do we do with that? Where are you with this? With what Jesus is doing now and with what he has promised to do in the future? I didn't grow up in the church, came to this later in life. I was 22, a senior in college, when I, I, I began to taste what it meant to trust Jesus with my life. And it wasn't long after that, as I was interacting with other Christians, I heard people saying that they really longed for Jesus to return, to come back. And I, I so remember my initial reaction. I thought, I don't, you know, I don't think I'm quite ready for that. I don't really, I, I kind of like my life. I don't know if I am, can, can I kind of hop on board and say, I really want that. If it happened right now, I would be delighted. Uh, but yet, in the history of the church, this has been the thing, right? It's mentioned, uh, there are over 300 references in the New Testament to the return of Christ. That averages one reference every 13 verses. And every one of them, you know, point to, to great joy for the people of God when, when he returns for those who are honestly in this trusting relationship with Jesus. So what, what has happened in this? What's been lost in, in the church where this isn't kind of an exciting thing anymore? I mean, and we, we can speculate on this, but I, I just submit that question to you. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, do you long for that day? Do, do you think about that? I mean, have, have, we, have we kind of personalized what it is that Jesus is doing for us now? and what he has promised to do for us in the future, and all that that will mean. You know, at, at Christian funerals, we say, 
uh, somewhere along the line, toward the end, maybe in the committal part of the service, at the graveside or at the very end of the funeral of the gathered community, may, may they rest in peace. And the best Christian understanding of that phrase is not, may this person now rest in this nice, quiet cemetery place forever and ever. The understanding of that is, may this person rest in peace now that their struggle with sin is over. That struggle, you know the struggle if you try to follow Jesus. It's there with you all the time. And it certainly seems the older you get, the longer you walk in this thing, the more acutely aware you become of how far short you fall. That, we hope, makes us all the more reliant on what God has done for us, all the more grateful of the depth of this whole thing, all the more amazed that God would choose me and actually want me. How can that be? A time when God will make everything back to be as it was supposed to be. Really? That's amazing. So our response is is this. You know, we're called to be thankful and, and ready. Here's the thankful part. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. Thankful and ready. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. I love the way uh, author and and pastor J.I. Packer put it. Budget and plan for an ordinary span of years, but in spirit be packed up and ready to leave at any time. When the Lord returns, he should find his people praying for revival and planning for world evangelism, but packed up and ready to leave nonetheless. That's, That's it. So I wonder... How's God getting your attention in this today? What's God saying to you? What might God be asking you to do about it? With the church all around the world today, we celebrate communion together as a symbol of our unity in the gospel and our belief that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the teachings of the Bible that while at some level we might experience them as difficult, we rely upon you to help us understand. God, reveal your goodness to us 
in the promise of a day of judgment. That, that promise that proves that you actually care about right and wrong. That you actually care about all of the injustices and violations that have happened in this world. And that you will set all accounts straight. God, to imagine a world without judgment would be to imagine that you don't care. And that is unimaginable. So thank you that you do love us too much to leave us to ourselves. Thank you that you've come to us in Jesus, done all of these things for us, and continue to work on our behalf now. God, help us to hear you and help us to cooperate with your work in our lives. We love you, Lord Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen.